the past. This is Dating Ourselves, the podcast that talks everything 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. I'm your host, Adam, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brian and Paul. Hello. Hello. Welcome to 61, the episode of A Thousand Faces. Why is that exactly? Lon Chaney, the man of a thousand faces, Universal Monster, the Phantom of the Opera from the 1943 classic. Gotcha, gotcha. Paul, Paul, that's the wrong Phantom. We're talking about it a little later than that, buddy. No, I'm pretty sure it's the same one. There's an opera and everything. (laughs) (laughs) All I know is that you should never go hunting with Lon Chaney. That's all I know. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, that's the wrong Chaney. That's Dick Chaney that shot him in the face. Wait, well, wow. <laughs> yeah, I know we're not always politically correct on this show, but I was not expecting such foul language from you, Adam. <laughs> All right, you know what? Fine. The, the, we're talking about the 1943 movie that starred Dick Cheney as the Phantom of the Opera. You guys are happy. <laughs> I'd watch that movie. <laughs> yeah, I would pay to see that. <laughs> It'd be a Halliburton of a show, you know? <laughs> um, well, I'm sure uh, Adam Brian would... was fired at that moment. Oh, the other no. quail man. Oh, no. I'm on night shift again. Damn it. <laughs> um, well, I'm sure Adam will clear this all up for us in a little bit. Either that or he's going to be owing an apology to the Cheney family for all the name calling. Um, but in the meantime, actually, more than likely what's going to happen is he's going to shoot me in the face and then I'm going to apologize to him for the uh, strife I caused his family. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but in the meantime, if you missed our last episode, you should really go check it out when the gang and I discussed the musical stylings of TLC. You can find that and all our past episodes at www.datingourselvespodcast.com on iTunes, Google Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. I found mine in that one drawer that everyone has that's just all the random assortment of stuff. Yeah, it was just hidden in there. I don't know why. With cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Are you talking about your bedside drawer? No, not the bedside drawer. It's that drawer in everyone's kitchen that just has the random assortment of like oh, uh, takeout oh. menus and batteries and and packets of uh, condiments and stuff like that. I no, gotcha. It it's I a Midwest how... thing. They have a closet down south, I believe. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> I was going to say there's a lot of batteries in your bedside table too, as well as packets <laughs> of condiments. This thing is what you said. <laughs> condiments. <laughs> oh that was that was well played well played (laughs) all right well anyway let's get this started this week i'm going to be leading a discussion on andrew lloyd weber's theatrical masterpiece the fan of the opera which was submitted by neva s of rockville maryland and stacy s of grand rapids michigan i wonder if they're related they both have s in their last name maybe Uh, their last names are both actually s that that could be. Oh, it could be like that, that fancy be. S that you used to draw, like on your on your three ring binders. Ooh, there you go. The yeah. the like one that kind of looked like the Michigan State logo, but oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw a Facebook video that told me that actually is for the Illuminati. Have you guys seen that? No, no, no I haven't. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Okay, well, uh, this and is tinfoil hats. Too. <laughs> <laughs> So, speaking of Neva S. of Rockville, Maryland, I think she's here with us today. What's up, Neva? Hey, guys. Yes, you heard that right. You only have to just submit a topic and be married to one of the hosts to be on the show again. (laughs) And we have an eligible bachelor on the show. You can make these dreams come true. (laughs) This is true. If you ever want... 
to be a guest host on the show, all you have to do is get hitched to this guy. It's a very prestigious selection process. <laughs> do, do you have a topic that you submitted for the uh, show? Yes. Do you want to get married? Well, not really, but I want to be on the show. Good enough. Let's do it. <laughs> I, I feel like that's not the order of operations that most would follow, but yeah, you, you know. could do that. Hey, different, different strokes, right? <laughs> That's right. Speaking of that bedside drawer. Um, <laughs> so, so Neva, thank you again for joining us on the show, uh, I guess, this evening. Uh, it might not be evening when you all are listening to this in Internet world. <laughs> the last time you were on this show, I believe it was episode 10. So we're on 61 now. Um, so back then we discussed uh, Harry Potter, yeah. Yakbacks, and the Super Smash Brothers Nintendo 64 video game. Hold up. Yeah. I just realized this might be the first time I've been on the same episode as Neva. Yeah, because she filled to... in for me on episode 10 since I was out of town that week. That is true. And were you... What was the other one? Was... Was I on another one, or am I having a false memory? You did uh, an interview for one of our uh, holiday specials. So oh you, yeah, you, yeah, that was invo- a yeah. one. Involved some some B real interviews. So, yes, I, um, I was I was Adam's understudy. Now I remember. This that's is true. Right, that's right. So Neva, welcome. I'm so happy to be on the same episode as you. It's for a nice change. to meet you for the first time in my I know. life. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is a little weird that we've never met since I was in your wedding, but yes. You know. <laughs> It happens, whatever. You were busy, I understand. Yeah, yeah. So so what have you been up to in this last year and a half since you were on the show? Oh, man, I've been doing a lot of stuff. Most um, The thing that's been taking up the most of my time is I started a wedding photography business after I got married. So wasn't on my radar then, but it is now. And and now we have corona, and I, there no one's getting married, so that's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Marriages Not have the been best canceled. Time. <laughs> Not the best timing ever, but it's okay. <laughs> well, it'll pick back up again. People are going to keep getting hitched. So. Yep. <laughs> It'll happen. Especially now that all those Rona babies are on their way. Oh, God. <laughs> That's true. You might need to uh, switch uh, specializations. No, if I, if I have to take newborn pictures, I will quit. I am not a baby photographer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's your favorite Rona baby name? Um... I've heard of some people naming, not not naming, but talking about naming their baby Corona, and I think that that's icky. That's, that's it. I'm a big fan of Quarantisha. Oh, oh. That's a so good I was, one. Think, I was thinking Corona Lisa. Um, Corona very, Lisa, wow. Corona Lisa, yeah. She'd have her portrait hung at the Louvre, or in our case, the Lou, you know, just put it right over the toilet. LOL, LOL, LOL. The, the I now have a second cousin named James Covid. Oh. <laughs> wow. And I'm not joking. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Neva's uh, suggestion for just naming the baby Corona reminds me of that discussion in the movie Waiting when uh, there's two customers that suggest naming their baby Chlamydia. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> like, oh, that'd be a nice name. That is no good. No, no. Well, on that sour downturn, I would uh, like everyone to remember we will pick next episode's topic at the end of the show. It will be Nostalgia Combat! Nostalgia Combat! No other takers? Nostalgia Combat! (laughs) 
me and Dr. Mario versus Brian and Judas Priest. We will also visit our old friend, the Hopper of Imagination, to get another topic for Adam. So, Adam, bring us to the point of no return. Paul made a Family Opera reference. Very nice. Love it. Love it. <laughs> it was spoon-fed to me. I am, I, I am I was, going to be listening like a giddy schoolchild because... I was, <laughs> I was trying to give you a little bit of cred there, Paul, and you just shot me down. Real nice. <laughs> I will fully admit that I have seen the 1943 Alon Chaney classic. I have seen another TV version that was similar to that. And I speed read the book, uh, as in the French novel, before this show, but I have never seen the musical. So what wow. you're saying is you're a fan of hipster? Oh, dang. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, isn't the Phantom kind of the original hipster? He really is. Yeah. I mean, he avoids daylight, he covers his face, woe is me. He listens I mean, to music that no one else has ever heard of. This is yeah, true. Fair. This no, is he would true. definitely be an emo by... Um, <laughs> By these standards. <laughs> that, that's yeah. true. I could definitely see him with, like, the emo haircut, li- listening to, like, uh, the cults and stuff like that. All right, so this week we are talking about The Fan of the Opera, which is a uh, musical based off of a novel, like Paul mentioned, The Fan of the Opera by Gaston LaRue. The setting for the tale is 1881 Paris at the uh, Opera Populaire, uh, which is an actual building in Paris. And uh, the storyline, the the basic storyline, there is a uh, musical that's being rehearsed as the opera populaire finds out that there's going to be new uh, ownership of the opera. And they also announce that there's going to be a new uh, patron, uh, meaning that there's going to be someone that's like financing or, or helping to pay for the opera. Um, and that is uh, the Vicomte de Chagny, uh, a guy named Raoul, and uh, kind of a young, uh, he, he's the son of a wealthy family in Paris. Um, so it's, uh, the story follows a, a girl by the name of Christine, who they discover is kind of an up-and-coming uh, talent uh, in soprano uh, for the opera singers. And uh, she Along is... with Gandolfini, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> So she uh, is uh, training to become a better singer, but nobody really quite knows who the person training her is. She just refers to him as the angel of music. Um, And then there's this guy, Raul, that uh, is now the patron. And you find out that they knew each other as kids um, and were friends and kind of had a thing for each other and stuff. And now that they're adults, uh, they kind of start to rekindle that. But what the wrench in all of that is that she also has this uh quote-unquote angel of music that is uh in love with her and you find out that that's the phantom of the opera and it's this uh person who lives under the paris opera house teaching her how to sing and stuff like that but also is infatuated with her and so a lot of the story revolves around this love triangle of the phantom being in love with christine as well as raul and, you know, who is she ultimately going to end up with? Obviously, it is most noted for its music. It's a uh, musical and is 
completely uh, sung dialogue. There's no spoken uh, dialogue in the entire musical. Um, and so, yeah, we'll just kind of use that as a jumping off point. So is there anything, uh, I know Neva's a big fan of this as well. So is there anything you <laughs> wanted to add as of yet or... Yeah, I, this is one of my favorite musicals. And I always, it's weird to say that because I am a, I'm, I'm a hater of Andrew Lloyd Webber for the most part. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't love all of his shows. I, like, they're just really campy, tacky to me. But Phantom is one of those Jesus shows Christ. where. <laughs> Superstar. Shut up, Brian. I mean, other than, other nobody than likes that, that show. Uh, other than, <laughs> other than that one, like in the Phantom. Like he's done cats. Well, cats. Cats is hot trash. Oh, garbage. <laughs> uh, Starlight Express, garbage. Evita. Well, I, not to open it up on a negative Nancy note. I was just gonna say that <laughs> Phantom is. Um, one of my earliest memories. It, my mom had the original cast with Sarah Brightman and Michael Crawford in the oh, car nice. when I was five. It was the only thing that she could play that would get me to shut up and just sit silently and listen to something. So it's always been a part of my life. Um, it is the it is the very root thing that got me to want to be a singer in the first place and want to do theater. Wow. Um, for those that don't know, I was a theater major at Michigan State, which is where I met Brian. Um, but uh, yeah, this, this was like, <laughs> yeah, this was like the root show for me and and i i still i I still am head over heels for it it's it's um i would call it a masterpiece in in the musical theater canon so it's one one of my favorites i i think uh most people would agree considering it is the one of the longest it's the longest running broadway show ever and one of the longest uh west end still at her majesty's theater yeah 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 in fact my my mom got to see the phantom of the opera at her majesty's theater in london me too uh, last september yeah i'm still a little (laughs) i'm still a little mad at her for that i got i got really really lucky I was in band as well. So there was one summer where I did um, like an all state band and we went to Europe and we did like a tour. And when we were in London, we got to choose between three different shows that we could, you know, go see. And I, of course, chose Phantom. So there would be no way (laughs) that I would have gotten that opportunity unless, you know, I was there for that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. I got to see Phantom at, at Her Majesty's Theater. I think it was like 2000. Six, two thousand six. Oh, nice. Um, nice. So yeah, right after the it was getting amazing. real popular again. Yeah. So the uh, the first Broadway show I ever saw on on actual Broadway was Phantom of the Opera, um, and so that was that was really awesome. Um, at least I thought it was really awesome. My brother <laughs> at the time, he was I think twelve or thirteen. And was just way, way, way too cool in his mind. You know, he was two years younger and had to be like kind of angsty. He was into all the X games and stuff like that. So at intermission, he asked my dad if we could just leave. Um, Um, (laughs) Which is really funny considering how into musicals he is now. Especially the fan of the opera. Yep. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Now, I I guess I never really knew, Adam, that it was based on an written work by Gaston mm-hmm. and LeFou. I, I had no idea. Um, oh my god. <laughs> I quit. I'm going to ask you to leave soon, Brian. <laughs> well, he's already been fired, so I yeah. think the next I think the next thing is just a protest. We all need yeah. to just walk out. Like I out. can actually show him the door in our apartment. No. <laughs> oh, damn. Oh, oh, right wow. looks like Gaston has good looks like Gaston. You know? <laughs> We're going to pummel Brian with books like Gaston. <laughs> oh. 
Uh, One thing to note about fandom I was going to say is, for the most part, and correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, I feel like the general kind of population... Uh, is mostly aware of the Phantom of the Opera musical via the 2004 movie with Gerard Butler and Emmy Rossum and Patrick Wilson, which is, (laughs) yeah, I would say like most people that know the music about of the Phantom of the Opera know it through that, not necessarily the original cast or even um, the 25th anniversary um, concert that was released in 2014, which I consider to be the definitive Phantom. It's absolutely stunning yeah um but i feel like most people were were introduced to the phantom in what i think is a really mediocre subpar version of the musical itself like gerard butler is not the best singer he was also 40 emmy rossum was 16 she was literally a minor when she was playing christine yeah, so that's like true. That's... it was super weird yeah that's true <laughs> and um, I, I just I, I feel bad saying that now because joel schumacher just died and he um he directed that movie mm-hmm. but um, I, I do have to say, yeah, Gerard I, Butler has those, you know, Spartan washboard abs. It I mean, it's going, to sell, it's going to sell tickets. <laughs> That's true. And it did. Oh, my God, did it. Yeah. And, I just and never I understood that casting choice either. I mean, yes, he was he's a man of, of granite. But at the same time, like, I don't know. The, the, the phantom character is supposed to be this hideous monster tucked away from the but world. But a musical genius. Right. So almost like. Almost like a Quasimodo meets like, I don't know, Edgar Winter. I don't know. <laughs> Pick your own. Did he take his shirt off in the movie? No. <laughs> no. But there is a part where he uh, loses the mask, obviously, and you know he's right. all disfigured and stuff like that. But it's... Uh, it's just very, very strange that they would pick somebody who couldn't sing, right. but was very handsome, to play a guy that could sing really well... But was but, hideous. But was hideous. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is in the in the movie this this always bothered me. And don't get me wrong, when the movie came out, I was sixteen and I was freaking obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. I remember in high school, I would literally, if I was bored in chemistry or like any class, I would just sit there and write literally the lyrics <laughs> nice. of the show, like <laughs> like a weirdo. Like this was an obsession that I had. But I remember one of the things about the movie that that just bothered me. Um, was that his deformity, like the Phantom, when they remove his mask in the climax of the entire movie, it's like literally like a scar and maybe a second degree burn. Whereas in the stage musical, it is a grotesque disfigurement. Yeah. Um, yeah that- and it's just not because it's a Hollywood movie and they still need Gerard Butler to be like handsome and kind of ugly. They like they couldn't put glasses on him, so they yeah. did like the next best thing. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, I know there uh, a lot of people don't particularly care for that version. Um I probably in the I wouldn't say like it, it's necessarily like the one I think is the definitive version. Like I would probably agree with you and say that the 25th anniversary DVD or, or uh soundtrack is the best hands down it, it's so good but uh, at the time when uh the movie came out it was either the 2004 version with gerard butler or it was the one with michael crawford and um uh what's her name uh what was the girl's name sarah brightman uh, brightman sarah brightman and uh obviously like the two from the the original cast were much better singers and stuff like that but i thought that the like where the movie lacked in the fact that there was, you know, he wasn't as good of a singer as Michael Crawford was. Um, I felt that they got the emotion 
a lot better with it. Like, uh, it always bothered me with the Michael Crawford version that even when he was angry, he'd still have these, yeah. uh, like, kind of sing-songy, like, flighty, happy-ish sounding uh, mm-hmm. lyrics and stuff like that. And I was like, that never really made sense to me, whereas the, the movie yeah, yeah. version actually made him, like, an angry... Like, he, you know, he was this guy who was living under the uh, opera house because he was outcast by society. Uh, the woman that he was in love with was uh, turning away from him because of this young, good-looking, handsome, rich guy. Well, also because she wasn't really interested in him. Right, right. <laughs> like, on a romantic level. So it, it, there is that that aspect of, like, abject creepiness. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but it, it made... It, the movie version made more sense to me as far as the emotion sure. of the storyline. And I think that's something that's been done better since then uh i think that that well i think in the just the with the language of film you're able to give a lot more visual exposition where you can't really do that in the in the stage show however what i will say about the stage show in what you were describing about michael crawford i feel like in musical theater um directors go one of two ways so they either pick someone who is a better actor and 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 less of a talented singer but you can train that or they go the other way they pick someone who's mm-hmm. a phenomenal singer and then they uh rely on the direction to be able to make that person make the character come to life right. i feel like the original broadway cast of phantom with michael crawford and sarah brightman they were both phenomenal singers oh absolutely but they could Amazing. not act like when no. you go back and you look at their performances with hindsight with with people like ramin karimlu and sierra Bogus and the 25th oh, yeah. anniversary cast and also the movie where you really can de- delve into the characters when you mm-hmm. look back at michael crawford and sarah brightman and, and those very early productions you can see just how much of the actual emotion and mm-hmm. acting is for lack of a better word, really lacking in those first productions. And I know that's right. kind of heresy and there is some blasphemy there. Cause there's a lot of people that that is their phantom and Christine, yeah, yeah. Michael and Sarah, but mm-hmm. never really was, was my favorite, especially, um, you know, as an adult, as like mm-hmm. where you, where you can see all of these different portrayals over time. And I'm like, no, no, get Michael and Sarah out of here. Right. Cause <laughs> I actually had listened to the phantom of the opera prior to seeing the movie uh, the the you know original cast with Crawford and Brightman and all them and didn't really care for it necessarily and I was like eh and then when the movie came out I was like well I'll go see it you know I was in musical theater at the time I knew it was one of the most popular shows in history so I was like I'll go see it and then I saw the movie and I'm like oh my god like this is so much yeah. better than I understood because you got to see like so much more depth to it like you mentioned and and they they do delve a little bit more into the phantom as a child and stuff like that that they couldn't do in the in the right uh, stage version so that was you know that's the one thing i will say for the movie i know it's not a lot of people's favorite and i can understand why but that was what always made it a little bit more interesting to me than the original cast uh you know compared to the original cast but now, you know, having the version with Ramin and, and, you know, the 25th anniversary and stuff like that, I would definitely say that one yeah. top with the, the movie version uh, kind of in the middle there. 
Um, and I don't, I don't know if you ever got this sense, Adam, but I always feel like, cause you know that, um, Sarah Brightman and Andrew Lloyd Webber were yes. uh, together during right. the, like at the, at the time when he was creating the musical and as it was kind of, um, becoming a juggernaut, I always kind of got the sense that Andrew Lloyd Webber saw himself as the Phantom because the man is a <laughs> musical genius, but he's not that pretty. <laughs> like no, he's not. I- not very nice to look at. And you have Sarah Brightman, who is, like, by all accounts, just this, like, gorgeous creature. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he saw very much in the two of them. And as he was creating the show, he saw himself as the Phantom and her as his... He calls her his angel of music to this day, and they are very yeah. much not together. Right. <laughs> but he was. she was kind of his... Uh, his muse for, uh, yes. you know, lack of a better term on that. But right. uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I could definitely see that. And I think that's one th- reason why maybe so many people connect to it is because mm-hmm. there's, you can tell that it was written from a place of like real feeling. Like he really yeah. knew how to pour that, that onto the page. And it really makes the, you know, while ultimately the Phantom is not necessarily the the hero, the most of sympathetic the story. character. <laughs> yeah, he's. Although that is something I wanted to ask you is I feel like there's a there's very much a debate in the Phantom of the Opera fanhood where it's like it's like it's almost like Twilight where it's like which team are yeah. you on? Are you Team Phantom or are you Team Raoul? And I like f- since the very beginning I have always staunchly been Team Raoul. I'm like Team. Like mature adulthood, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I've I've never understood the people that are like, oh, give me the Phantom any day. I'm like that. He is a overgrown man child <laughs> who like is fixated on this innocent girl who cannot defend herself. Mm-hmm. Literally steals her, and then like. <laughs> well, let's not like- <laughs> also forget that he like basically has a passage into her room in the dormitory. Yeah. Yeah, what's and up also with that? a shrine to her in his lair, like mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, now, do you guys think that like before we start getting into all of these um, different theories and debates and things like that, we we could probably go over the uh, the plot a little bit more. Too. Oh man, Brian, yeah. you're pulling us back. <laughs> I'm just saying, if anyone's in the same position that like Paul is in, that's listening to this, I, that's it, true. You, you, there's a lot of foundation that has not been laid, and we're on like the I just 35th think it's, it's really funny because we were talking about this yesterday, and Brian turns to me, he's like, "I know this is probably a silly question, but are you planning to do any research about this before tomorrow?" I was like, "Oh, Brian, <laughs> I am the research." <laughs> <laughs> oh. But yes, I think that's a good idea. I do have a whole bunch of ignorant questions. Please, like well, yeah, ask, yeah, yeah, actually. Listening to you guys, you've answered most of them because from what I'm gathering is this actually goes much closer with the book than I thought it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It it you know changes certain things a little bit, but yeah, it. I mean, well, the it's, Persian is nowhere to be found. <laughs> right, right. Okay, that was one of my questions. They make um they turn the well for, they got rid of yeah they they got rid of the only brown character <laughs> the person yeah, is gone yeah, yep. and they gave his role to Madame Giri. So in the book to to those that don't know what we're talking about, um, so obviously we're talking about kind of fa- the Phantom lives in this in the sewers of the Opera Populaire and he takes Christine as his protege and teaches her to sing. Um, and basically at at one point during the musical after she's gone on and replaced the star. Of the opera popular Carlotta Giudicelli, she goes on in her place one night, does does amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, he then that night like takes her and steals her to his lair and keeps her overnight and is a huge creep. In the book, uh, there's a role called the Persian, who is basically the um, 
and, and Paul, you probably know more about this than I do because I haven't read the book in a long time, but he's kind of the Phantom's confidant and basically his conscience. Yeah. Yeah, through the book and 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 basically is like, listen, bro, you're being freaking weird. Like, stop. I'm not going to defend you forever. Meh. And they give basically that entire role to Madame Giri as kind of the glue that holds um, the Phantom's backstory with us as the audience who just does not know who he is, what he represents, how he's doing what he's doing. She kind of becomes that conduit um, and, and, and even, like the, the backstory machine. And even then, it's more of like an expository type of thing right. in, the, in the musical than it is in the book where it's much more mm-hmm. direct interaction. Mm-hmm. You know, the only interaction that anyone really gets with the Phantom other than Christine and then at the very end of the show Masquerade. with Raul is... Well, just the the letters he he yeah. writes letters yeah. he writes Notes. letters to and, everyone and his uh, his uh, random like interruptions and things like that. Yeah, I will yeah. Say, I will say speaking of the notes, kind of those those um those are really the only songs in the entire show where you have multiple characters delivering exposition at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like you'll have six characters in the room all singing at the same time their motivations and their uh, misgivings and. Uh, what they're afraid of. And I, I made Brian watch the 25th anniversary um, uh, production at Royal Albert Hall with me right at the beginning of quarantine. I was like, you need to watch this with me. <laughs> and that those those numbers like made him anxious to listen to. <laughs> Whereas because I was, I've been so obsessed with this show since I was a kid, I know literally every single line that every character is singing <laughs> like separately and it's not just like a giant cacophonous noise to me. So like I can only imagine as someone who like does not have a lot of history with the show is like what the hell is happening right now. Yeah, <laughs> it's like stumbling into a Zoom meeting 30 minutes oh, into it <laughs> and not really knowing who's saying what, what they're talking about. Um, it's 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 intense. Um, well, it's, it's not the whole section isn't like that, but there's a lot of, you know, you have somebody's reading a letter and basically the Phantom is blackmailing them. Like, listen, I wrote this new music and Christine is going to be the person who's going to sing it. Mm-hmm. And um, then they read another letter. And who's the the like the premier uh, soprano? What's Carlotta. her name? Uh, Carlotta. Carlotta. Carlotta Giudicelli. Giudicelli. Yes. <laughs> I feel yes. so great to hear you guys pronounce that because all I did was read it. And in my head, it sounded completely different. <laughs> Which I will say. <laughs> we're not going with my attempted pronunciation. I will say Carlotta has always been like my dream role since I was a kid because I've never been an ingenue. I'm sh- I'm very short, very stout. I always wanted to play her like since I was a child. <laughs> I love her. It, it, well, she's it just so been over the fun... top too. It's yeah. a fun character too because you get to be very much a diva. Oh uh, yeah, like, like bombastic, she, a prima donna, uh, if you will. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. That's absolutely. a phantom joke. That's a phantom pun. <laughs> 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 um, but but yeah, you know, you have these different letters and they're all reading them separately, and then they kind of all react to them at the same yes. time. Like it's in that that's it's intense it's really intense but that's the whole purpose behind it too is to create a well, it's, feeling it's supposed of to make you feel unease at that yeah. time too because yeah. you're supposed to feel like these characters is like this phantom right. has really been and and you kind of get the sense at the very beginning of the show when when the owner of the of the opera popular uh what he does is it's, it's it's in the first scene after the auction house when we're back in the timeline of um of Raoul Christine and the phantom um the very first thing that happens is the owner of the opera popular is like 
hey everyone, great job, nice rehearsal. By the way, I'm piecing out, I'm retiring, I don't want anything to do with y'all. And then he brings in these two new owners who very much discount and uh, discredit like this opera ghost and they, they don't care. And you get the sense that to that point, the fandom has only really been kind of this nuisance. Um, he hasn't really been... Um, a, a, a character that comes out and says, this is what's happening. This is what I want. And you're going to do at the end. Um, it's after this new, this, this change of ownership takes place that he really kind of asserts his, um, his dominance and his, his kind of propelling Christine into the limelight. Um, and that he only really sees happens. that as yeah. his opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so to kind of go back to what Brian was saying, uh, I think it would be good to kind of go over the, the actual storyline a little bit more for, uh, for those who have never seen it. Um, so as Neva mentioned, the show starts out with a prologue of, uh, what you find out is Raul is an older man, uh, at an auction and he's buying, uh, these random objects, including a little music box with a monkey, uh, playing a barrel organ and then uh, they talk about the chandelier and they kind of reference that there was some mysterious events that led to a fire at the opera house and that the chandelier was uh, there the night it happened. And they turn on the light uh, now that it's got electricity wired through it. And then that launches you into the uh, song, the Phantom of the, uh, the, uh, the overture of everything. And then once you come out, of that. You're at the rehearsal for Hannibal, yep, which is the opera the re- they're about to put on. Yep, yep, you're at the uh, rehearsal, and... No relation to Silence of the Lambs, either. No, none nope. whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you're at this rehearsal, and uh, you are introduced to Carlotta and uh, Piangi, who is the male tenor. So, you're uh, seeing them practice for the show Hannibal that they're going to be producing and during it you find out that the ownership of the opera is changing and they introduce the new owners as well as uh, Raul who's the new donor for the place Uh, and they go back and start doing it well then Carlotta kind of throws a big diva moment and uh, decides that she's not going to perform and uh, they're trying to figure well, the, out what the Phantom actually goads her. So he. Oh, um, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So he he brings one of the set pieces crashing down while she's singing her kind of the title song. Think of me for the Was new it? owners. They requested yeah. her aria. to sing for them. Yep. So she starts the aria, and the Phantom um, basically brings one of the the set pieces just crashing down, and. Um, that's when you learn that, that 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 particular kind of instance has been happening kind of all the while, never really that serious, but always a huge nuisance. And then she, uh, the owners are like, ah, oh, these things happen. And she's like, well, while like if these things are happening, this thing, meaning like her, this thing isn't going to happen. So she mm-hmm. storms out um, and basically quits. And so at that point, um, I think I'd either Madame Giri or Meg mentioned, like, just pipes up and is like, Christine can sing it. She has a great teacher. And they ask her to sing Think of Me. And then you're kind of transported into her. It goes from that one kind of rehearsal right into her her title performance. And you see that she does, like, a phenomenal job. And, mm-hmm. and you're kind of brought into the whole world. Yep. Yep. Uh, so then, as mentioned, she goes uh, back to her dressing room. There she is, uh, talks to her friend Meg for a minute, uh, who is like, whoa, that was incredible. Like, I need to meet this teacher of yours, stuff like that. Um, and then Christine kind of starts to get this weird feeling and like her blood runs cold and stuff. And uh, she starts to hear the phantom uh, speaking to her again. And then uh, he appears 
kidnaps her, takes her down to the uh, lair under the opera uh, for the night. I mean, to be fair, that's kind of how practicing music was for me when I was a kid, too. So <laughs> I was going to say, he was also, the, in, the, the inciting incident for that is also, I think, like, um, Raoul comes to visit Christine and basically uh-huh. says, like, you did a great job. And they, yep. they kind of rekindle their romance a bit. And mm-hmm. the Phantom gets hella jealous. Oh, yeah. I think yep. I think his first words are, like, insolent boy, this slave of fashion basking yeah. in your glory. It's it's real. Um, Sharing gets, in my trial. She thinks, she thinks that's what the words <laughs> to are. To use yeah. like twenty twenty vernacular, he gets pretty salty. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he he gets a little jealous uh, that she's uh, got this new fling, and so uh, he kidnaps. That's when you get the title song. Yeah, Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so then, uh, yeah, that's when uh, the the titular song is when he's bringing her down to his lair. Um, kidnaps her and then she wakes up uh, down there the Which, next day this is actually a, a kind of a cool like broadway trivia and I, I don't know adam if you if you know this i'm sure you do but i brian and paul might not but the title song the phantom of the opera is the only song on broadway that i know of that is pre-recorded so yep. christine yep. and the phantom don't actually sing the the, the first the first half of that song which is the most famous song from the musical but what happens from the moment where he takes her from the mirror is the two title characters are from then from that point on not on stage as the phantom and christine so they've they pre-record that song mm-hmm. and they then go um backstage and kind of get into that remote controlled boat that brings them into the lair but during the first half of that song while that's happening uh there's a decoy phantom and christine on the catacombs at the top of the oh, stage see i didn't know that who, part. you see on on the stage at that time is not your real phantom and, and christine so when they reappear again at the end of the song when christine is singing those like ridiculous notes to the rafters and i think it's like a high e mm-hmm. um that's them so she does have to hit that note but wow. everything before it is pre-recorded which in the broadway world there's a lot of people that are like annoyed about that like Ugh, but that I would go be to broadway to listen to pre-recorded music and i'm like just chill <laughs> yeah it's part of what i have an ignorant question about the layer yeah yeah so, in the book, the creation of the supposed lair wasn't terribly covered, but there was a huge epilogue to the book that filled in, like, tons of the fans. So they went the Tolkien route? Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's the appendices? <laughs> yes. That, and, um, because Who needs exposition I, in the book? <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, because time was of the essence, and like college, I waited till the absolute last minute. <laughs> Uh, I spent a lot more time in the back of the book than the beginning and middle because I was trying to fill in all the pieces. Mm -hmm. So in the epilogue of the book, they talked about the Phantom was the son of a construction worker or son of a man who owned a construction company who was, you know, more disowned because he was disfigured. And it was through his connections in the construction world that he had that built when they built the. Oh, yeah. I can't say the French name. Uh, Someone else. L'Opera la, la uh, Populaire. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So that's where all of the tunnels and everything come from. And I'm just curious do they address that in the movie in or is the, it just no. there? In the musical. Or sorry, in the musical. No, yeah. In, in the musical, they kind of skip over a lot of that, except in this like act two exposition dump where um, like the Phantom comes and like F's shit up. <laughs> and um, Raoul is super frustrated at this point. So he's like, Madame Giry, I know you know something. What do you know? And she tells him. So the backstory in the musical is that the the Phantom, as a disfigured child, was part of a traveling circus. And he was one of the freaks in the circus. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and she like she saw him in 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 the circus and will never forget you know how disfigured he was and how tortured he was and she knows that he escaped and she knows that he lives in the sewers but she doesn't know any more than that but she mentions that he's a genius composer and an engineer and this this and that and you're then led to infer that that's how he does his magic that's how he does all of these things and you kind of have to fill in those blanks for yourself um, and the book was very much the same way, except for that they covered a whole bunch of backstory in the epilogue. I mean, they did talk about him being in the circus mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, the freak show, for lack of a better term. Yeah. yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, the, the oddities tour or whatever. Exactly. Right. But the, the epilogue is where they covered where the engineering background piece came in, to be honest. I found that to be the most interesting part mm-hmm. of his backstory yeah, yeah. that was, like, completely missing. And then they just tuck it in at the end. So I was just curious how right. they addressed that in the musical, I think in the musical, there's – to have more of that – because there's there's a different language that's spoken in books versus cinema versus musicals. I think for, to have the suspension of disbelief, the audience has to, you can't explain all of his magic, so they have to kind of bridge that themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think that that was an intentional choice where they didn't give you all yeah. of the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of had to be this, um, you know, this this magical character, and whether or not he actually possessed magical powers, or there was like an engineering background that gave him the ability to do all of these optical illusions, mm-hmm. they weren't going to tell you, and you, as the audience member, have to have to decide that for yourself. So, right. in the musical, because I think that that was an intentional that's kinda choice. That's kind of how that's kind of how I interpreted it, especially as you know, a teenager was that it was much less literal. Like this place that he was taking you to was like not of this world. Like his lair was interdimensional or mm-hmm. something like that. And in the, in and the movie, you, they really, the end- they, they, they lean into that pretty hard in the yeah. movie. Yep. Like even when he appears for the first time, even though he's just appearing from behind what I would assume is like a two way mirror or something like that. Um, it's very like, it, it's, uh, kind of, it, it's very mysterious. Like all of a sudden it's mm-hmm. just like, he kind of appears in the mirror. Like, it's not like you can see him mm-hmm. walk up. It's just all of a sudden, his his shape uh, you know uh, kind of dissolves from behind this and it's like whoa like where mm-hmm. did he just come from so they but Joel Schumacher in the movie also made the choice whenever he's leading her through the through the the sewers you see the candelabras the arms yeah. move on their own versus when Rao later in in the musical goes through those same hallways himself mm-hmm. they do not move and they are not magical right. so you're led to believe that that's in her imagination yeah. um so well, and in they very the, do, yeah in the, they mm-hmm. do very much kind of give you the idea that she is not necessarily in her, uh, like a normal state of mind when she goes down the first time. Right. Not necessarily that she's like drugged or anything, but it's almost like she's mm-hmm. either in a trance or yes. or maybe she like saw him and was surprised and passed out and she's having mm-hmm. a dream as he's bringing her down or something like that. Right. And you actually, Adam, that reminds me of my absolute favorite part of the, of, of act one. And it's kind of where you, where you left off after I led you on a tangent. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's m- music of the night. So whenever yeah. he brings her to, to the lair for the first time, um, and we as the audience and Christine both are seeing this kind of magical phantoms layer for the first time, you are able to see that she is in a trance that he puts her in. So the entire blocking 
for the the song music of the night as he's singing to her that is the power that he has over her Mm -hmm. so there are different movements he does with his hands where she then like will close her eyes and kind of track her face up towards him Mm -hmm. and you get the sense that he is just making her soul float um and and she like at the end of the of the musical number she passes out i and and it's it's just through this trance that he puts her in so he is really very much a um just like super mysterious. And it's one of my favorite things in the entire show. Cause you get to really see like the chemistry between the two actors and, and it's very easy to get wrong, but it's magical when they do it. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, absolutely. And that, that is a, uh, you know, just a phenomenal part that they have right there. Uh, just, just as you said, kind of showing their chemistry and showing that power that he holds over her. Um, his power over her grows stronger yet, in fact. Yes, that's true. Ah, ah, that's very ah, true. Ah, ah, ah. So then... I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, just for expediency uh, here, we're, we'll uh, kind of abbreviate uh, what happens next. You don't want the podcast to be as long as the show? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or longer <laughs> in many three, cases. <laughs> three and a half hours later. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, basically from that point on, he like he sends her back to be with the uh, uh, rest of her um, opera group and stuff like that. Um, but he really is trying to push for her to become the lead of the opera. And so as uh, we alluded to earlier, uh, the Phantom has written this opera for her and he wants her to be the star. So he's got to get rid of Carlotta. And so from this point on, he starts becoming kind of more in- increasingly uh, aggravating to the the opera, he he intends like it literally to starts it. to make demands. Yeah, yeah, like he he tries to disrupt it as much as possible by uh, you know doing these little tricks to uh, mess with people. Uh, there there's a particular scene uh, where they're supposed to perform a uh, he he tells the people that Christine's going to play the uh, main character in this new play that they're going to do. Uh, not the one he's written, but uh, another Il- one. And Il- that, Mudo? yeah, yeah, and that Carlotta is going to play this silent character. Well, they go against him and uh, have Carlotta be the uh, diva again, and so he gives her like a spray that causes her vocal cords to uh, get hoarse, and so she can't sing the part. Um, and- well, it's so sassy what he does because she calls Christine a toad and then he makes yeah. her croak. Yes. Which is just grade A sass. <laughs> yep. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, from there, uh, he gets increasingly more and more uh, vicious towards uh, the people uh, trying to get his way of getting Christine to be the, the lead in this musical. Um, and well, then- that kind of goes he's back also, to the very he- beginning of the show, too, because the show starts at this auction house, or I guess it's an auction at the theater, where they're auctioning off um, one of the chandeliers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the significance of that chandelier is during one of these performances, it drops on the stage. Um, yep. And that's, so the- that's part of his antics. Well, the backstory to that, it was like a force of passion. So after Il Mudo, whenever Carlotta went on and he made her croak, um, they then switched uh, Christine and Carlotta and had her go on as her replacement. But before that happened, Raoul and Christine go up to the the rooftop of, of the of the of the opera and they profess their love to each other and they sing All I Ask of You, which is one of the more famous duets from the show. And the Phantom is there listening to them. So he gets 
hella pissed and he gets super mad because Christine, which is, he basically sees as his property at this point, is, is basically, is accepting the proposal and, and love of this rich, weak sissy boy is how he thinks of him. So once that happens, after he sees her betray him, which is how he describes it, then at the very end of act one, and this is one of the most famous moments in musical theater and Broadway history is he brings the chandelier crashing down and that's the end of act one, which I think is the most badass way to end the act one of a musical because they actually literally, the chandelier comes crashing down in the show and it's such an amazing moment. It's incredible. Yeah, it's uh, there's some there's some great stuff for sure. One of my favorite things in the show is the hopping back and forth between the songs that are part of the musical part of the story that's being yes. told as well as like these really, really like, like pastiche opera. <laughs> oh yeah. Like I'm, I'm trying to remember what the one song is, but it's all about Carlotta's essentially um, having an affair on her husband when he goes off to oh, battle or something like that. He makes me laugh. <laughs> and then she laughs all these yeah. crazy arpeggios <laughs> and runs like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's just all over the place. And it's so silly. Um, <laughs> It's it's so campy, and you can oh, yeah. tell like Andrew Lloyd Webber has such like just a blast writing it because it's supposed to be well because they 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 get around it by saying that Hannibal and Il Mudo, which are, which are the two on stage productions you see in the show prior to the Phantoms work that he wrote originally, they describe them as new productions so that it, these are not operas as we know them. These are not operas that exist in our world. These are these belong to the world of the show. So mm-hmm. they can get away with Andrew Lloyd Webber then writing like a parody of what an opera would be like mm-hmm. at, in the timeline of the sure, show. So sure, I, I love it. And and when we were watching the, the 25th anniversary cast, I think that was when Brian got the most tickled because he was like, this is ridiculous. Because most of what <laughs> I remember of the show, you know, is... Phantom of the Opera, Music of the Night, mm-hmm. um, Point of No Return, you know, all, all the all the big numbers that are separate from these these theatrical performances that are happening. But you have a show within a show. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I had kind of forgotten how like really like silly, but at the same time clever they are. Like they very much mm-hmm. kind of poke fun at the type of music that existed back then. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for somebody like Carlotta who just thought she was like hot shit. You know, yes. it, it's the it, weird it's really Al. Of, it's the weird Al of opera, <laughs> right? Yes. right. <laughs> uh, That's so yeah, funny. I, absolutely, I agree that that whole part is just masterfully done. And then there is one thing I wanted to go back on. So going going back to a point that Neva had made, there was a scene uh, that you're talking about, Neva, where Raúl and Christine go up onto the opera house uh, roof. And that's where they kind of profess their love for each other and, and they, uh, you know, get engaged and stuff like that. Um, Sing in harmony, you know, the things yeah, you do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pretty pretty common. Um, totally cash. But there's a part where uh, you find out that the Phantom was up on the roof the whole time and overheard the whole thing. And he's shattered at this point because this woman that he is so mm-hmm. in love with is now uh, agreeing to get married to this pretty boy, rich guy that he despises. And that's one, this is one scene in particular that I love from the movie, and I thought they did so well with the, the emotional uh, oh, the conne- Gerard connection. Not. Yeah. Uh, be- because where. <laughs> He's like crying. Yeah. Because where in the, uh, in the musical version, he just kind of sings, sings that line and stuff like that. Here, he gets pissed and he like you hear him kind of crying and stuff like that like he realizes what's happening 
Uh, but then you just like the music swells up a lot, with a lot of bass. Mm-hmm. It's like the timpani drums kind of building up in this low. Oh, uh, it's epic! The bass and the bassoon and all, that, and it builds up, and then all of a sudden he just kind of he's still singing, but he's got this like almost rock voice, like a like a raspy, just like he's furious and letting all of it out. He goes, "You will curse the day you did not do all the Phantom asked of you." Uh, and that is one uh, particular spot. It's the the last part uh, of scene one, or act one, and it just nails that emotion so well. Whereas I always thought that was lacking with the Michael Crawford version. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was always one scene that really stood out to me in the movie was that part just because it was like, oh, man, he's pissed and everything's going to be real bad from now on. Like, you thought it was bad already. Just wait now that he's scorned by the woman he loves. Right. At one point, he was just kind of this jealous guy, and now he is, like, full-on, homicidal like, guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a tyrant uh, beyond imagination and whatever he needs to do, whoever he needs to maim or kill to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. He will. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it's a, which it's is, a turning which is, point would, for that character for sure. Yeah. And I was going to say, it's really funny because that's the end of act one. And in act two, the first thing you learn is that he's been basically gone for six months. Mm-hmm. Um, when they start with masquerade, it's basically, again, an exposition dump, which you have to do at the very beginning of act yeah. two, where all the characters come together for this ball that uh, Raoul throws, which is a masquerade ball. So everyone is in these costumes and they're all... Uh, toasting to a brand new year, a new chandelier, and how the um, that rhyme is, is a lyric from the show, so I'm not just rhyming for the sake of it. Um, but they also mention that that the uh, the phantom, our friend, has not been has not been around in six months, and maybe he's just going to be gone forever. But you learn that what he's been doing has been fine tuning his new opera, which he's then going to make them uh, make them produce for him. So he he like. Uh, crashes the party literally he's dressed in and this is a difference between the the um the movie and the and the stage musical which i think that the stage musical gets un like it gets just so so right is he's dressed in this fantastic costume called the red death so he's basically dressed like a skeleton with this giant red hat and this red suit um and he comes down and says he notices that Christine is wearing um, the engagement ring as a necklace because she wants to keep the engagement secret because she's worried about what the Phantom will do. And well, he's seen it. He knows what's happening. And he looks at her at the very end after he's uh, basically crashed the party and says, your chains are still mine. You will sing for me or you belong to me. And he like rips the necklace off of her and is like, yes. This is the best way to start Act Two. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> but Act Two is is I was gonna say just a lot more straightforward in terms of plot. You don't jump around a whole lot. It's basically the fandom comes and says, I've produced a new musical, Don Juan. Christine's gonna be the lead character. This is what's gonna happen. And then basically from the beginning of Act Two to the end of Act Two, it's like it's just are we going to do this? Yes, we're going to do this. Christine's like, I don't want to do it, but I'll do it. Fine. And Raul concocts a plan where he's like, well, if you sing it, if you go on, the Phantom will be there and we can catch him and we can kill him. Mm-hmm. So he tries to, to flip the script and say, if you help us, um, we can be done with this forever. So um, it basically goes from there to really the end of Act Two, where they're where they're producing that um, Don Juan, yep. and Christine goes on. And sorry, Adam, I'm taking oh, your your no, job. Go, 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 run. <laughs> well, I, I want to stop you real quick, and then and then we can hop over to Adam, kind of giving more of yeah. how the plot kind synopsis of plays out. But 
completely in contrast with what the other plays have been that they've done where you, like we were talking about before like there's like silly musical like arpeggiated laughter and this new <laughs> show this Don Juan is all just crazy dissonant uncomfortable mm-hmm. almost impossible yeah. lines to sing um it's it's absolutely like it it sounds like madness and it, um, it, it does really, it really does. It kind of it, it uh is a metaphor for how he feels about everything now so it really like everything is very angry and you just feel that like anger and hatred that he has now uh for what's been happening in the last six months or whatever Brian, that's a really good point, because one thing that I absolutely love, and this is this is part of the reason why I think that Andrew Lloyd Webber, I would call this musical genius, is because there are these motifs that you hear throughout the show that that kind of set the stage, for lack of a better term, but they kind of get these songs in the mind of the audience before you hear it in its final form, yeah. where it's kind of like an equivalent is like the, the Fellowship of the Ring theme. You don't hear it until they're all together, mm-hmm. and then you're like, yes, this is, this is what it's supposed to sound like. Yep. But in, the, in Act 1, when you're in the lair, you hear him writing these songs, and you hear him uh, uh, playing on the organ some of the motifs from Don Juan. So you hear him writing this music mm-hmm. while Christine is in the lair with him. And every now and then when when he'll sing to her, he'll sing in the motif of Don Juan. So you hear a little bit of Point of No Return yep. in, in Act 1, but you don't know wh- where it's going and you don't know when it's going to reach its final form. And then you hear it all come to a head in this madness of like a show you and also don't know where it comes from or where it goes like cotton eye joe like cotton eye joe <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh you can't you can't brian's gonna brian yeah. <laughs> um, love me or leave me you know <laughs> so wait wait don't make that choice <laughs> um, but yeah so i mean so this this Don Juan opera, there's a whole lot of like, and please someone jump in and kind of fill in what the details I'm missing. But there's this one particular part of the the performance where there's a whole bunch of people wearing these like dark masks and stuff like that. And then um, there's supposed to be this duet between Christine and Pianji. And yeah. then, what's that? Pianji. Mm-hmm. His name is Pianji. He's Carlotta's. Um, Pianji. Yep. Yeah. He's like, like, the, the like her tenor. Essential tenor. Yeah. He's he's yes. like he's like the Pavarotti of the show, basically. Um, but in the show, the way that he writes it is that there is an identity switch inside of the show. So um, Don Juan is supposed to switch places with one of his um, with one of his like assistants or slaves or or whoever, and they're supposed to switch switch places so that he can conquest um, the. I don't know what her character's name is, uh, but Christine's character. Um, so he wears a hood during this song, which is genius because you have an identity switch, but it's outside of the show. So the phantom switches places with Pianji and he kills him backstage. So Point of No Return is sung with the phantom and Christine, but the audience is technically not supposed to know that it's the phantom on stage with her until the very, very end when she realizes it. And yeah, neither does Christine. So it's all a mystery to everybody. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is super uncomfortable um and then yeah that's when you find out that that her co-star has been killed and that's when this big chase starts this chase yes. going through the lack of a better she term like catacombs him in front of, down to the lair yeah. yeah 
Yeah. So one of the things that I think that I think is just wonderful about the point of no return is when she realizes it's him. This is really the first time in the entire show that Christine has some agency to, to make a decision for herself, because until this point, Raoul has been making decisions for her. The Phantom has been ma- making decisions for her. Everything sort of happens around her and she finds herself in these circumstances. But at the end of point of no return, she realizes that it's the phantom and she decides to unhood him so the audience can see him in his mask. So Raoul knows he's there. All of the police that are surrounding the stage can see him. But then she makes a, a what I think is a really power move on her part is in front of the entire audience. It's not enough that she took his hood off. She also unmasks him so that the entire audience can see his disfigurement. And that point uh, kind of sets into motion the the ultimate betrayal to the Phantom. So he, he steals her again. Raoul is foiled. He takes her down to the lair and basically says, this is it. He puts her in a wedding dress. You're mine. We're getting married. You're here forever. You're, you're mine forever. Um, and that kind of leads into this kind of um, confrontation between him and Raoul, who's come to rescue Christine. And they have this really climactic three-part... Um, uh, kind of sing song at each other. Basically, the right. Phantom's like, she's mine. And Raoul's like, I want to save her. And Christine's like, you betrayed me. And it's one of my favorite parts of the show because it's it's just epically masterfully written between the three of them. And uh, what Christine ends up doing is sacrificing herself. So what she does is the Phantom has given her this choice. It's either you choose me or I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to kill both of you, really. So she decides, you know, you pitiful creature, your life has been awful. You're about to kill the love of my life. I'm going to sacrifice myself and I'll stay here with you. So she kisses him. And at that point he realizes I've effed up. And he he's <laughs> like, oh shit. Like you two need to go. I'm like a wretched, crooked, awful person. Um, and he basically uh, sets them free and they go and um, they- He basically tells them to never return. They row, row, row their boat off into the distance, and he um, he has one of I think the the most epic end ends of a musical oh, yeah. ever. Is he um, Christine gives him his ring back, and he uh, basically the music of the of the night motif uh, swells back up, and he says, "You alone can make my song take flight. It's over now. The music of the night, and that's the end of the show." And he goes and sits on his chair, his, his like his throne in his lair. And he disappears. And Meg, the chorus girl, Christine's friend, comes in. And the very last thing you see is she, um, there's a sheet covering the chair. She flips the sheet over and you see that he's disappeared. And the only thing left is his mask. Yep. And you're left with that. So it's it's absolutely gorgeous. And Adam and, and I, I, we were talking about just the music and how it's written at the very end. It's, it's um, without any singing that the horn section and how they play that very last really triumphant version of music of the night and, and really sad as well. It's, 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 it's extremely bittersweet and it's it's just one of those really genius moments of musical theater. It's, 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 Sorry about that, folks. We are having some technical difficulties on our end, but we are back. And I think we basically wrapped up the play-by-play of the show itself, right, guys? Yes. Yeah, I think All right. so. Okay, good. So from here, are there any other peripheral details related to the Phantom of the Opera we wanted to discuss? 
yeah, any any other details that we wanted to go over or anything like that? I do have a story, uh, a couple stories that I thought would be fun to throw in here, but I want to make sure there's no other uh, stories or anything related that we want to do first. No, no. I mean, feel free to. Um, yeah, it's it's an open okay. format. <laughs> it's your it's okay. your show, it's man. You, you do what you want to do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. So, okay, so uh, the stories I have, uh, these are both from, uh, like, this is a second-hand telling from where I heard the story, but uh, when I was a senior in high school, I was in chamber choir, which was the, like, varsity choir, uh, like, mixed group. So it had, you know, bass, tenor, soprano, alto, all that. And then uh, there was an all-women's choir that went with us, too, but we went to New York City for uh, a choir trip we did them every other year and so uh, it just happened that senior year we went to new york city and so you know we got to explore and stuff like that but on these trips uh we were also required to do some sort of like performance and also some sort of workshop or something Mm -hmm. like that to make it like school uh appropriate or whatever so uh when we were in new york city we went and did a workshop with this guy who was a music teacher in New York and also happened to be a musician in uh, on Broadway. He would play in a lot of the orchestras and stuff. I'm so jealous. And this is... Oh, I know, right? So uh, this was in probably February of 2005. So this is like right after the Joel Schumacher film came out. And so... Um, yeah. You know, it was obviously, like, really popular amongst all the theater people and stuff like that. And so the show was fresh in everyone's mind. And so this guy was talking about how he played piano for the Phantom of the Opera on the orchestra recently and stuff like that. And so Mm. we were asking him about stories. And he had two stories that were absolutely amazingly funny. Uh, The first one involved a scene that we talked about already, which is uh, past the point of no return which is where, um, you know, Christine kind of sets this trap where, you know, she gets him on stage and then mm-hmm. uh, they're in a situation where they kind of can't get out. And so she grabs the mask and rips it off and throws it away from him so that everyone can see how horribly disfigured it, he is and stuff. And so this happens in the production and she throws the mask. Well, it slips down into the pit orchestra oh, no. and lands right <laughs> next to him. And he's like, <gasps> and he sees his chance and he grabs the mask and he puts it on and he turns to everyone else. And he's like, guys, look, I'm the freaking Phantom. And everyone has, everyone has this absolutely horrified look on their face because what he didn't realize is that those masks cost quite a bit of money because they're form fitted to the actor's face. I was going to say they're custom fitted to every, or custom fitted to every single phantom. So he's like holding this yeah. like ridiculously expensive prop. <laughs> yeah, and and when he put it on, it basically ruined the mask because it messed up oh. the form fit. No, <laughs> so, no. Oh yeah, so he, he got a little crap for that one. Uh, but the other one that he told, uh, the other story that he told that I loved. Uh, had to do with the very, uh, you know, final scene of the show. And so, you know, as we talked about, there's this great final scene where the music of the night is kind of reprising Mm -hmm. in this amazing orchestral piece. And uh, that was what me and uh, Neva had been alluding to earlier. Great scene where, uh, you know, that music is playing and he realizes that this mob is coming to get him. And so he lets Christine and Raul get away. And he makes his escape. 
in the theater production, if you've never seen it, how he makes his escape is he sits on his throne and throws his cape over the throne, and then when the mob gets down, they take the cape off of the chair, and voila, he's gone. So this guy was explaining that how they do that is when he throws the cape over, they have it they have it hung in a way that you can't see the fit of the chair, and there's a button on the throne that the actor playing the Phantom hits, and it spins the chair 180 degrees so that he's still in the throne, but he's now being covered by the throne and there's an empty seat. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, in one of the performances that he worked, there was a malfunction. So the mob gets down and they pull off the, the cave. No. And guess who's still sitting in the chair? The phantom. <laughs> <laughs> Which really changes the ending to that show. <laughs> I'm, really sure, I'm, sure, I was, I'm sure they have some sort of contingency plan for if it doesn't work. Because like there's a similar instance also in the final layer where um, the Phantom is supposed to have like this magical hanging noose around Raoul's neck. And sometimes it's like it's I think it's like a percentage like one in every 50 performances, the noose will malfunction and it just will not be on stage. So the actor oh. playing Raoul has to literally throw himself against the cage of the lair and act as though he's magically being restrained there, which is a lot oh. harder for the actor because he has to like sit there and restrain against nothing and also sing. So it's I'm, sh- I'm sure they have some sort of contingency plan for all of the quote unquote magical moments of the show because sometimes they oh. just don't happen. Oh, <laughs> yeah, sure. see, initially, yeah, what I, would... initially what I was thinking thinking to to Adam's story is could you imagine like the actor playing the phantom the cape gets pulled off of you and you like still have the whole audience in front of you you would have to know right away that you have to have some type of like confident menacing face but what he probably looked like was like oh shit (laughs) (laughs) this was supposed to happen and like that doesn't uh, really sell like a really foreboding ending so Um, funny story (laughs) sorry about kidnapping christine and ruining your shows and well the good thing all that stuff i was gonna say just even thinking about it because i I know the show ends without the entire um ensemble it's meg that comes and like flips the sheet over and she's the one that's supposed to find the mask and not the phantom but she always um you can characterize her as like revering the phantom because she's madame jerry's daughter they both know that he's been there so she could potentially allow him to escape or something and, and, and put the sheet back oh, down on him or something yeah, like that's that. Interesting. Good point. So I'm sure there's like some sort of characterization that they've like that's um, interesting. nailed ahead of time that if this happens, this is if this, then that. Um, yeah. But yeah, super, super interesting. To your earlier comment though, um, so like I said, I was thinking about Adam's thing and how the actor playing the Phantom would probably be like really caught off guard. But then I was also thinking about of all of the malfunctions you could have with a noose, <laughs> having it not be in there, up, yeah, having it not show up is a pretty good one. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> having it show that, up too quickly or show up too high and your feet don't touch the ground anymore or something like daisy. that. There's a lot worse, a lot worse malfunctions that could happen. So, so funny. Um, Raul is probably okay with with having to pretend it's there than. <laughs> Than the alternatives. <laughs> was it the Spider-Man musical that crippled oh my God. like three of the actors? Well, it killed someone too. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. That was a really high-profile disaster. Yeah, didn't it only run for? It ran for less than a year for sure because of how like how uh, 
unfortunate it was yeah. for the actor's health. And I, I always feel bad because Julie Taymor was a really well-respected director before that, and she hasn't really had any high-profile anything since then. That really, really put her name through the mud. It That's wasn't sad. really her fault, yeah. though, right? Like, it was... Didn't they kind of rush production or something to... Yeah, I, I yeah. thought I remember was, that they kind of th- rushed production to it was also a, like a needlessly popularity. like dangerous production like all of the yeah. it, it was like Cirque du Soleil but you have to act and sing as if you're on Broadway where Cirque du Soleil does not require that of its of its people yeah, um, right. and it acrobats yeah yeah and, and Broadway stages are not built for those sort of requirements and it was yeah like Adam said it was it was super rushed and um, I always feel really bad because Julie Taymor is obvi- obviously no spectacle. She was the, f- the director of The Lion King, um, which is one of oh, the biggest yeah. spectacles that's ever been on Broadway. Um, but yeah, that was a cursed production. <laughs> yeah, Jeez. no kidding. Jeez. So, so Adam, do you have any um, information about like how the show developed over the years? Because I know it originally started in London and then it's you know mm-hmm. been on on Broadway in New York City for you know decades. Um, yeah. Any particular statistics or, or trivia facts, other than you know your nostalgic combat question by chance, um, <laughs> um, that, well, that, that might I, be a particular note for for us and for the listeners. I don't know necessarily about statistics or anything like that, but I do know that the sets have uh, really been able to uh, develop pretty amazingly since the you know original production. Obviously, since then technology has progressed quite a bit where they've been able to do some new things with it and uh, really be able to make some amazingly intricate set pieces and stuff like that for uh, the production. Like one of them that we talked about earlier uh, in the episode, I know that Neva uh, had mentioned is the Royal Albert Hall performance, Mm -hmm. which was the 25th anniversary. That set is a, one of the most stunning set pieces oh, I've gigantic ever seen. Too, like it's, it's just yes, it, it was also oh, just oh, absolute insane how they did it because Royal Albert Hall is not a theater; it doesn't have wings. Right. It's not built for a show like The Phantom that requires a scrim and requires a backstage area for a lot of what's mm-hmm. like the costume changes and what's technically required for the show. It's like a surround the Royal Albert, right. Albert Hall. So that how they changed it, and I mean, as someone who's seen the stage show and Royal Albert Hall. Royal Albert Hall, that 25th anniversary production, is my absolute favorite because of the changes that they had to make and the kind of just what was necessary to make the show anything other than a staged concert. Um, right. It was really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, and how they were able to achieve that and make it look so, so good. Like, it, it truly was the, – the set design was breathtaking in that one. Yeah. Um, was really cool, but – yeah, I mean, other than that, you know, a, a lot of the the changes that have come about have just been from the, you know, new technology and new uh, ways to do things that they couldn't do back in 1986 uh, that have really allowed them to, even on the stage productions, uh, the, the normal stage productions, be able to do, you know, uh, more intricate looking set pieces and stuff like that mm-hmm. without... Um, 
you know, really affecting the show too much. There's also really interesting ways the show hasn't changed at all. I was watching some yeah. backstage videos, as I do, because I've always been a Broadway nut nutcase fanatic. But um, yeah. after I watched Not the royal, confused with Doctor Vink and being a <laughs> yes, <nutbag>. yes, <laughs> ooh, go, going going back in the in the uh, dating bag. ourselves trivia. That's um, right. <laughs> but um, it's funny. I was watching some some behind the scenes stuff um, a couple of months ago after I watched the 25th anniversary. DVD because I was just in my phantom obsession again but a lot of the times because it's Broadway and because even for a show like phantom that's been running for so many years and is so opulent and is just a financial mega success there are just limitations they have just because they're on Broadway and because the the budgets are they're not like movies so a lot of times Mm -hmm. the Actors playing Christine will be putting on their costumes and their dresses and they'll just look down and they'll see a tag that says Brightman or another another person that was playing Christine 10, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. And it's like they're literally wearing the same costumes. They just make slight adjustments. They don't a lot of the a lot of the biggest, most opulent costumes are not custom made for these actors. They're passed wow. down from actor to actor and a lot of times you'll like look at your tailored yeah. yeah you look at your costume and you'll see like an old like we have a towel here that says adam bonnet <laughs> like like your, <laughs> like your mom sewed it in um <laughs> but yeah it's, it's it's really really interesting i i will say um I, I think just in terms of trivia christine's wedding dress at the very end of the show is one of the heaviest garments on on Broadway, and it has to be custom dry cleaned every single day. So they have someone that comes to the sh- that comes to the theater to pick up specifically that dress to take it to the dry cleaner to I think clean in three parts. The dress has three parts to it, and they have to deliver it back every single morning. So that one wow. one garment gets specific like chauffeured dry cleaning every <laughs> single day That's because incredible. of how intricate it is. <laughs> Which is just super interesting to me. Could you imagine if they like missed the delivery or something like that? I'm sure it plays like every day, like and sometimes twice a day. But oh, that's another thing. Christine is the only. And sorry if I'm just being like a useless trivia machine. But Christine is literally the premise of our show. (laughs) Christine Daae is one of the only roles on Broadway that has two actresses playing her at all times, and it's not a main actress and understudy type thing where like. In every single other role on Broadway, there is one person who plays every character and they do it eight shows a week. And if they get sick or if they get tired, then someone else subs in ad hoc whenever they need them to. But Christine, since Sarah Brightman, since the very early days, has one main actress and then uh, a second Christine that goes on for at least one show every week. That is that is her role because Christine is one of like it's it's one of the most challenging roles to sing. I believe it. Yeah, it's it's insane. So that there is all there are always two actors or actresses rather assigned to her at all times, wow. which is obviously different than most roles on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah, funny because the character of Christine is an understudy of sorts. I know. At, least at the beginning, it's so Isn't good. That, I didn't even think about that. That's wild. <laughs> it, well, it must be just thinking about it from an actor's point of view. It's got to be one of the coolest roles to play because the very first thing you do is you're thrown into the spotlight. So I'm sure as, you know, for any Christine making her Broadway debut, it's got to be such an easy role to get into the mind space of at the very beginning where it's like really nervous and you have to, you're just like, okay, sing, think of me on a whim. And she's supposed to be nervous at the, at the very beginning and then kind of grow Mm -hmm. into it as the, as the song moves on. But it's got to be such a unique 
kind of headspace to put yourself in, at least for someone who is nervous and who it is their first oh, time. Yeah. And it's, I'm, I'm sure it's like the coolest feeling in the entire world. Oh, I bet it is. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, the fact that the three of us gentlemen were born in 1986, the year that the show was released. <laughs> and my parents um, were married that year. It's a yeah, good year. And, yeah. Neva <laughs> was a born a, a few years later. Um, <laughs> I have just kind of always assumed that this show has like always existed. Not, you know, obviously that can't possibly be true, but like, <laughs> you know, I I had always assumed um, up until probably I was like 14 or 15 years old that the Phantom of the Opera like existed around the same time um, as, as the Gaston novel. Um, and so <laughs> when I first heard Iron Maiden's song, The Phantom of the Opera, which sounds nothing like anything from Andrew Lloyd Webber's work. I was I always wonder like I wonder why they didn't borrow any of the motifs from his show or anything like that. And the reason is cuz it came out 6 years before the musical came out. Cuz they'd um, have to be time travelers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Steve Harris could do it. I mean, <laughs> the dude That's invented true. the gallop on the bass guitar. I'm sure he it's could true. like <laughs> he can do whatever the hell he wants. But um but yeah, it was uh I don't know. I always really liked that song. I always thought it was really cool and when you go back to that original iron maiden album you know most of the songs on that album are three and a half four minutes long except for the phantom of the opera is seven minutes long and at that <laughs> time unless you were a band like yes or rush or the who or something like that pink floyd nobody had songs that were like seven minutes long you know so it was very unique in that way um and a lot of heavy metal bands weren't really going for that progressive feel like like they decided to on that first album and have continued to adopt that you know 40 years later so but um yeah i don't know phantom of the opera i think is is really cool and such a cool premise for a show for a book for you know a movie you know there, there's a lot of interesting elements in terms of good and evil and the, you know, the price we pay for, um, you know, reaching our goals and things like that and mm-hmm. the danger that sometimes obs- puts us in. And the danger in. of our obsessions. Oh, yeah. 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 And I'm sure we could talk entirely about the, um, you know, very, very toxic feelings that, that the Phantom has for Christine and things like that. Um, oh, yeah. But well, the, yeah, the feelings of entitlement and... and- just this idea that like if you obsess about something or you're, or you're you are fixated on this thing that you're entitled to it um which is yeah super super toxic and manipulative and a lot of things <laughs> yeah so neva pretty much loves everything about phantom of the opera except for its sequel oh man Love i was Never just going to bring this up uh. well okay so the the phantom of the opera the the musical occupies the same space in my brain as harry potter and they have the, i have the same rule about both any canon added after the original canon doesn't exist in my mind because the love never dies is trash and the cursed child is trash. And it's literally just the creators <laughs> finding any way to like plunder the fan base into giving them more money yeah. after the thing yeah. stopped giving them all of the money. So it's like, Mm-mm, nope, the story is trash. It's gross and dumb. I'm not listening. <laughs> yeah. If, if I have very got- strong feelings about this. <laughs> If you guys don't know what uh, the show is about, um, Love Never so bad. (laughs) Yeah, Love Never Dies is basically uh, Christine is uh, asked to come and uh, perform at um, Coney Island in New York, 
uh, at the like famous boardwalk. And so her and Raul and their son travel here, and uh, they don't know who invited them. And of course, it turns out that it's the Phantom of the Opera, and that he escaped the opera and, and came to the United States and all that. So yeah, it's it's a cash grab. Yeah, at, and my my feelings on like continuing a story like. I mean, again, like the Phantom of the Opera and like something like Harry Potter, where the creators and the original story was constructed in such a way where it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's, yes. It really invalidates the structure of the story that existed before it to just tack on new things. And I mean, even just things like the character the characterization of Raoul in... Mm-hmm. Um, in Love Never Dies just completely invalidates the character that exists in the in, in the Phantom of the Opera, the musical, um, all in the service of bringing what I think is such a fan fiction story to life of, of finding any way for the Phantom and, and, and Christine to come back together. And yeah. oh, oh, like he's your dad, like of her, of, of her kid. Spoiler alert, by the way. It's sorry. I really don't the, think like there's maybe one person who's super mad right now. <laughs> yeah. It's the uh, Fifty Shades of gray of uh Ew, ugh, <laughs> so of the <laughs> opera <laughs> the my immortal <laughs> so anyone got any other um memories or thoughts or favorite scenes or anything like that they wanted to share well one thing i was gonna uh say that i um, kind of forgot to mention so uh, earlier in the episode i mentioned that the opera populaire is a real place uh in paris it's in downtown paris if you go, I I haven't uh, actually been able to go into it before. Uh, it just wasn't in the time slot that we had when I was in Paris. Uh, but if you go there and you go to Box Five, which uh, oh in the storyline, uh, <laughs> if you go in, in the storyline, Box Five it was always supposed to be kept empty for the Phantom. And so, if you go there, not only do they keep uh, Box Five empty, but there is a plaque under it. That says in in French, obviously, the Lodge of the Phantom of the Opera. So I thought that was pretty cool uh, uh-huh. when I heard that that they actually have that set aside for the Phantom. So you kind of wonder if there is some sort of uh, uh, like a legend mythology like or legend, yeah, about uh, him actually being there or something. That's cool. Although, although let's be honest, if uh, if he actually was a real person, he wouldn't be around anymore. So you know, I think <laughs> I think I it's keeping think the legend that... alive. They probably get asked about it all the time. Well, that oh, he's probably. a phantom. I mean, he doesn't have to be alive to be there. Come on, Ooh, <laughs> oh, Brian, <good> <laughs> so right, <laughs> so true. <laughs> all right, well, that was all I had. Is there any other last things that you guys want to throw in? Or I throw would someday like to see the musical. I was going to say, I was going to be like, Paul, what's your favorite memory from Phantom of the Opera, the musical that I know you've never seen and have little exposure to? <laughs> exactly. I enjoyed the book. I will probably enjoy the musical. Yeah. <laughs> I love that part where they sing that song and, and do a dance. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, that man. Whole, that whole number. Yeah. I love all those moments. <laughs> Now, if you are looking for a really cool cover of Phantom of the Opera, Iron Maiden would not be the song, but um, <laughs> but Nightwish does an incredible, incredible, mm-hmm. like symphonic Ooh. heavy metal cover of Phantom of the Opera. Um, the female singer, she does Christine very well, but their um, male vocalist, I think he also plays bass in the band. He's got like this very Ronnie James Dio-esque quality about his voice, and it's Ooh. very, very cool to hear that in the Phantom. Like it's got this very like sing once again with me like it's just so 
in your face. Oh my face. gosh, now, now I really am disappointed that I will never hear Ronnie James Dio sing that song. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have like a five foot two phantom. <laughs> well, it is... It is pretty amazing how well kind of the genres of like the Phantom of the Opera, the, the musical and how Andrew Lloyd Webber wrote it, how well it goes with a genre like metal and how easy oh, they yeah. are to kind of mash together. He's always yep. kind of skirted with that, though, because like when you look at Jesus Christ Superstar, I mean, the way that it was written was very much for like a late 70s proto metal <laughs> mega tenor, you know, and in Ian Gillen of Deep Purple even once played the role of Jesus in, in the show. Cats, on the other hand, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, God. not yes. so much. Um, Sweet Brian. Not so much. Um, <laughs> But, but the rum tum tugger. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think he's kind of always had a little bit um, of an interest, a, a love affair, if you will, with, with the metal that is heavy. So, um, mm-hmm. well, if no one else has any other thoughts, I think that wraps up our discussion on the Phantom of the Opera. And now we're going to move on to some Nostalgia Coffee! Nostalgia Coffee! <laughs> yes, I have devised a trivia question for my co-host to answer. Whoever is closest will get to lead their chat next week. Brian has heavy metal legends, Judas Priest, and Paul has puzzle video game Dr. Mario. Are you guys ready? May I ask a brief question? Yes. Yes. Is Judas Priest not a person? No. It, nope. It's the name of the band. I guess I will have to wait for the episode. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of like uh, Alice Cooper is not a person. <laughs> All right, so uh, my question then. So uh, according to Playbill.com, which Playbill is the company that uh, does all of the uh, the actual Playbills, the booklets that you get when you go to see a musical, uh, they have a running tally of how many times a uh, show has been performed. Phantom of the Opera is the... Uh, you know, head-on favorite for uh, longest running. Obviously, it's been running since 1986. Uh, so, in that time, so since 1986 to 2020, how many performances of Phantom of the Opera have there been just on Broadway? So, we're not talking London's West End. We're not talking touring companies, anything like that. Just how many times has it been performed on Broadway since it debuted? I'm going to go with an even 1,200. I okay. hate you because that was my number because I'm trying to do math in my head. <laughs> I am going to go with 1450. <laughs> Neva, oh, do you want to take a guess? Oh, um, I think you're both under undershooting. I um, think we are too, which is why I slightly. I'm going to say 3,000. Okay, uh, so uh, we had what 1,200, 1,400, and 3,000. Well, 1450, you know. Oh, 1450. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, don't forget those matinees, te- okay? They're important. Te- te- <laughs> yeah. So technically, Neva is the closest, uh, but Paul would be the closest for uh, our, Price our is uh, right. nostalgia. Co- uh, yes, for our nostalgia <laughs> combat. Uh, but you guys still undershot it by thousands. Wow. Uh, the, the total number of performances uh, on Broadway. 
this is in March of 2020 that this was calculated. The Phantom of the Opera has been on Broadway 13,370 performances. 13,000? Wow. 13,000. We were 10,000 under. Yeah, the next closest is Chicago, uh, the 1996 revival with 9,692 performances, uh, followed by The Lion King at 9,302, Cats at 7,485, and Wicked. I was going to uh, say, Wicked's got to be up there. And then, uh, fr- like, the rest of the top ten would be Man, Les that, that, that checks out. That's eight shows yeah. a week yeah, for 52 for, weeks times, like, 35 years. What is it? Yeah, um, so 34 years, I think. Wow. It's 2020. So, it was debuted in 1986. That's crazy. Yeah, like 14,000. So, wow. So uh, some of the other top ones would be Les Miserables, A Chorus Line, uh, O Calcutta, which I've never heard of, uh, Mamma Mia, Beauty and the Beast, Rent, Jersey Boys, Miss Saigon, The Book of Mormon, uh, 42nd Street, Grease, Fiddler on the Roof, um, Hello Dolly, My Fair Lady, Hairspray, uh, all that, but I mean, all oh, that the lot. musical that'd be amazing. <laughs> Welcome to Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. Can I take your order? <laughs> well, there you have it. Paul will be guiding us through the land of Dr. Mario next time. I am a loser and still have Judas Priest in my pocket. And now we're going to visit the Hopper of Imagination to get Adam a new topic. We want to remind all of our listeners that if there's a topic you'd like to hear us discuss, you can submit those at our website, www.datingourselvespodcast.com. All right, Adam, your categories are movie, celebrity, Television show. Hmm. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go movie. That's not. I feel like a movie. You've just chosen Happy Gilmore. Hey, all right, <laughs> you jackass. <laughs> price is wrong, bitch. <laughs> the price is wrong, Bobby. Cool. That sounds good. I like it. All right. Well, that's very, very exciting, folks. Um, Well, thank you again for joining us on Dating Ourselves. Make sure to check us out in two weeks where Paul will be leading a discussion on Dr. Mario and in future episodes where Adam will be discussing Happy Gilmore and I will be discussing the Metal God's Judas Priest. Um, Before we get into all of our normal housekeeping at the end of the show, uh, Neva, thank you again for joining us um, and providing your expertise on this show. Is there anything that you want to say before you take off or um, any, any or uh, plugs? Yeah. Any, <laughs> any content you want to plug any, any materials, anything like that? Well, thank you guys for having me on. This is I, truly one of my earliest memories is, is of the Phantom of the Opera. So I'm so happy I got to talk about it with you guys. Um, parting words. I will say if you haven't seen the 25th anniversary Royal Albert Hall version of the oh, Phantom of the Opera oh, and oh. your only exposure was to the 2004 movie, Watch it, please. I know everyone's watching Hamilton right now, or was At time a of month re- ago time when of we recorded this. <laughs> but do yourself a favor and watch um, watch that Royal Albert Hall version. It's 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 really really good. So it is. thank you guys for having me on. 
All right. Awesome. Thank you. Well, and thanks again, everyone out in internet land for joining us on Dating Ourselves podcast. So if you like what you heard, there's more to come. You can check us out at www.datingourselvespodcast.com to learn more about us and the show. And you can check out our Contact Us tab if you'd like to submit your own nostalgic topics. You can also send us submissions at datingourselvespodcast.aol.com. We've got mail. In addition to iTunes, you can also find us on TuneIn Radio, Google Music, and wherever podcasts are downloaded. Please be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of the throwback shit. Oh, yeah. We post additional content on Facebook at facebook.com slash datingourselvespodcast. If you're on Instagram, you can find us at datingourselvespodcast, and we do the Twitter thing, too, at datedpodcast. And remember, if you're too old for Snapchat and too young for Life Alert, you've just been dating. Later, guys. See you guys. See you.